you're a guest today, you need to know North Wake is not typically a liturgical church. We don't have a lot of liturgy, but it creeps in from time to time in small bite-sized chunks. I'll, I'll teach you one uh, now. When something like that happens, I would stand up and I would say, amen, and you would say, and amen, okay? So I say, amen, amen. all right? That just means, that's the prayer that ends your prayer. It, it's like a cry to God that says, let it be so. Let it happen here, okay? Let that kind of unity that was just so beautifully put forward to us, let that be here. That's what amen means. It means, uh, come on, God, do, do this here, all right? So amen. amen, all right? You guys are good at this liturgy stuff, as long as it's simple, right? Let me, uh, let me uh, update you on something you need to know about that's happening in the lobby today. We, we have a database. Am I on? No, I'm not. No, I'm on. I was just yelling. Um, uh, we, we have a church uh, database, which you pro- many of you don't even know about. It's, it's a way that we get to know each other. If you want to call somebody, you can call them. You can look up their information and call them. It's way better than calling me for a phone number, okay? Trust me, it's better to be in this system. It's called Fellowship One. Serves many good and beautiful purposes in our church. The sharing of information amongst the body is one of them. You can check your giving online if you've forgotten if you gave or not. You can check it there. Um, So there's a lot of really good and useful uh, reasons to do it. One of which is that I use this and our other leaders use this to pray for you. And so when I pray for many of you, this is what you look like. Okay? (laughs) Ladies, this is what you look like when I pray for you because you're not in the database, okay? And some of you are in the database, but you didn't activate the database, so you're hidden in the database, or you didn't upload a picture in the database. There's a couple things you need to do. Uh, guys, you look like this. You got a little spiky hair uh, going on. Um, this is not helpful for me as your pastor, okay? Really does nothing for me. So we've been cajoling, prompting. I think at one point we threatened you if you didn't get in the database. In the lobby today, we're going to assist you. In the corner, just right-hand corner, you just come out the door, there's a table set up. You can log in, activate your information so that it's shared in the body if you desire to do that. If you want to be uber private and not let anybody know, you can do that as well. But our pastoral staff and elders do need to know you. They'll actually take a picture for you there, or you can upload your own um, when you get home. But uh, if you would do that, there's about 200 of you that don't exist, okay? You, you just don't exist. And if, you, if you're not sure if you exist, you can do one of two things. You can make an appointment with Sam Williams, because that's really weird if you're not sure if you exist. The other thing you can do is go out in the lobby, turn right, make sure you exist. They have a naughty list. Uh, make sure you're not on the naughty list. If you are, just sign up, activate your account. Smile for the picture, and then, and then we know who you are. We'll, we'll, we'll be praying for you. So, again, that's Fellowship One. It's in the lobby today. Please, please check that out. That's a, it will be a blessing to your leaders and to one another. Um, deeply thankful uh, for Ben Merkel's uh, clear, helpful teaching last week from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18. And I am really a, a, a bit overwhelmed that the, the lineup 
of Bible teachers that are available in our church. I've, I've never been in a church like this with this many really gifted Bible teachers. And I, do you know why God has given us such a good, a good lineup, a great lineup of, of great Bible teachers? It is so that we will become great Bible livers, okay? Not just big-headed Bible knowers. That's not the goal. The goal is that you would come here on Sunday. You would hear um, men gifted by God like Ben last week, and, and you would be open to what God is saying about your life. Um, so if I were to ask you to write down one way that our study of Matthew, that we've been in now for nine months, is shaping your life on a daily basis, could you write something down? Okay. That's why we're here. Okay. So that's why you're here today, to sit under the teaching of the word in such a way that it affects us. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, we're going to pray for that kind of receptivity and uh, Lord willing, useful delivery today. God, have mercy on us. We have trained ourselves to hear and not do, and we know that dishonors you, so help us today break out of that. Um, to sit under, to receive, to welcome, to delight in the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, for our joy and your glory, pray that it would be so. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a guy named James Needham tells a story. Uh, he's out at a local breakfast establishment with his family, and he notices a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. He says, he describes in this way, he says, his Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wing-tipped shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. Man sat alone eating a bagel as he obviously prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. Man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. And immediately, he says, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world, perhaps to one of the most important meetings in his career, dressed in his finest with a blob of cream cheese on his face. He says, um, I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who should tell him? Should I? What if no one did? He said, I pushed my chair back, stood to warn him, but the tables were too close and the noise of the crowd too loud, and he was out the door and on his way before I could stop him. He says, hopefully the man looked in the mirror before he got into his car, when he got in his car and saved himself this embarrassment. So let me change the story a little bit. Okay? What if it was me and I'm coming through the lobby on Sunday morning with a big old blob of cream cheese on my mustache on the way to get up and preach and you see me? 
and you don't say anything. I personally think that's just wrong, okay? I think that's wrong. Don't you think that's wrong? Do you see me with not just, not just a little, but a blob of cream cheese attached to my mustache, about to get up in front of a whole bunch of folk and teach? Um, I don't think that would be very Christ-like of you. I, I don't think that it'd be like the Father at all, because remember what Ben taught us last week. The Father chases us down when we are in need, right? He doesn't just let us go, whether we know it or not. He comes after us. These are the verses that Ben closed our teaching last week with. What do you think, Jesus says? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has a blob of cream cheese in his mustache, that's the paraphrase, one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father. It's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, if you remember the little ones... In Jesus' story, he's identified as, as those who believe. It's not, not children. They're like children, but it's not children necessarily. It's those who believe. They're the little ones. Okay. And the father chases them down so that he can rescue them when their need is far, far greater than a blob of cream cheese in their mustache. When they have wandered away from the father, when they have gone astray, when they've fallen into sin. And the Father pursues them, these little ones, folks like you and me. He pursues us to rescue us. So it is, Jesus says, not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So, in light of that teaching, if we are to be like the Father, okay, if we are to truly represent him and serve him well, then we must be rescuers too, right? That makes sense? If God pursues the wayward ones, we should too. When a little one, a brother or sister at North Wake, wanders off away from the Father and into all kinds of dangers and perils for their soul, we pursue them like the Father. If we want to be like the Father, we pursue them relentlessly. Now, this, this teaching raises two really important questions that our passage today in the back end of Matthew 18 answers. And those two questions are, first, how do we do that? How do we rescue someone who's gone astray? And the second question is, what if it, what if it works? What if it actually works? So let's take the first question first. How do we do that? How do we rescue those who have wandered off and gone astray? This is what Jesus is teaching starting in verse 15, Matthew 18. Look there in your Bibles if you would. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go. Tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, 
You have gained your brother. You've won your brother. Um, The first thing that jumps at you off the page there is that brothers and, sad to say, sisters would be included in this, sin. And they're going to sin against you. Um, if, If you've been in the church more than like a day, this is no surprise to you, okay? Stuff happens in the church. It's going to happen to you. It's not a surprise, but it's always a disappointment. It's always a disappointment when we are disappointed by brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters sin. Jesus says they're going to sin against you. And what Jesus does, then he's, he's about to unfold, and he unfolds here the first of four escalating um, kind of spheres of rescue. That he's laying out for us about what we do when someone wanders, when someone goes astray. Um, they're, they're like four escalating spiritual levels of, or levels of spiritual rescue. Now, what we're talking about here right away is sin. Okay? When someone sins against you. Uh, we're not talking about when someone bothers you or someone irritates you, or they annoy you, or they differ from you, or they disagree with you, or they just generally tick you off. Not what we're talking about here. Okay? We're talking about when someone sins against you. Think, think the Big Ten. Think the Ten Commandments against you. That kind of stuff. Um, that's what Jesus has in mind. And when that happens, Jesus says, spiritual rescue is needed. And the first of those four levels of spiritual rescue happens one-on-one. Just between you and your brother. Between you and your sister alone, it says. Um, you are to go to him or her. It's a command. Jesus is commanding this of us. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We go. We go to the one who's wronged us. Even though we're the one that's been wronged, we go. Just like the Father, remember? Just like the Father, we pursue. And notice what Jesus says next. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, This works, okay? Jesus expects this to work. This rescues relationship. It protects the unity of the body that we just sang about. It salvages friendships. It restores people to God. This really, really works. The implication, on the other hand, is if you don't do that, you could lose your brother. You could lose your sister. That's how important this is. Jesus expects it to work, but he's been around uh, followers like you and me long enough to know that it won't always work. So he escalates to the next level of spiritual rescue when that happens. Notice, Jesus is telling us, don't give up. Keep on trying. So, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Now we go to our wayward brother or sister with one or two others. Um, these would likely be, in, in the case of this happening at North Wake, these would likely be church leaders of some sort that would go along with you. Um, this, this kind of expression of two or three witnesses goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy that we studied um, a year or so ago. Uh, and it almost gives a legal feel to this. They're witnesses. They're going to establish the charges. That's for the protection of the person who's being accused in a sense. So that it's not some he said, she said, and he got there first. Okay? They are going to verify that this, really, this concern really is legitimate. Um, but it also ups the spiritual firepower. There are now two or more to pray and plead with the wayward one who is caught in their sin. If this does not work, we are not to give up. Jesus teaches us to move to yet another level of spiritual rescue. If he refuses to listen to them, to the, to the offended one and the witnesses, now Jesus says, tell it to the church. So now the whole church is to be informed of the matter and called to pray and pursue. At North Wake, we have, based on this passage and others, a process of spiritual rescue. It's sometimes called church discipline, unfortunately. It's our church discipline policy. And it, here it describes, at North Wake, we describe in that policy telling it to the church this way. Telling it to the church means that the congregation will be informed about the general nature of the sin, given a general description of the process that's taken place, and about the refusal to repent. They will be asked to pray for and plead with the offender to repent and to pursue the person for the purpose of restoration. Personal visits, telephone calls, and letters as an example of what it means to pursue them. The church is to keep on loving them and seeking their restoration. This for us, if you've been at Northwake any length of time, often, typically, actually will happen at one of our corporate prayer gatherings that's for members only. Um, that particular meeting would be on a Sunday evening. And those become intense times of powerful, humble intercession for the one ensnared by their sin. Now, if you're a member at North Wake, this is your church home. The way that you honor Jesus' teaching here is by making every possible effort to be at those gatherings. That's how you obey Jesus' teaching regarding this particular step. The whole church is then called to pray and plead with the wayward one. If even that third level of spiritual rescue does not work, the whole church praying and pleading, we do not give up. Instead, we, a very extreme tactic is now to be employed. It's something that the Apostle Paul described as handing them over to Satan. He actually uses that language. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> describing this final step, <clears throat> Paul is writing about removing someone from that fellowship in Corinth because of their sin and their refusal to repent. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that 
His spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord, it's redemptive. Even this final step is redemptive. It's restorative. Jesus, back in our passage, puts it this way. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I had a friend who used to think that meant you were extra kind to him and extra nice to him. You loved him the way Jesus loved tax collectors. That's not the teaching here. In light of the other passages, one of which we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 5 and others throughout the New Testament, and the fact that Jesus is here teaching Jews, Matthew's the most Jewish of the Gospels, he's talking about how they treated tax collectors and Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans in their, in their eyes. And that was they were excluded. Here Jesus is talking about excluding them. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says... Um, Remove this man from your midst. Okay. It is to actually exclude them from the fellowship. But even this final extreme step of removing someone holds out the hope of having them come to their senses and turn from their sin and return to Christ and his church. That's why Paul says, so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. It's restorative. It's redemptive. It's hopeful. It's not judgmental, vindictive, damning. That's not what we do. And you need to know here at Northwake, we have walked through this process of these escalating circles, levels of spiritual rescue with people all the way to the end where they were removed from our fellowship. And we have seen them at that point repent of their sin and return to the Lord. We've seen God do that. And we're still waiting for him to do that in a number of lives where we've walked through that process with them. Now it falls on me to teach our new, new members class whenever we convene one um, every so often. I go in and I teach them about this process of, of rescue. And I teach them that when they say they're going to join Northwake, this is going to be their church family, they're saying yes to this on both ends of this. They're saying, yes, I'll participate in loving humility with the rescue of others. And, and now, in this moment of spiritual sanity, I am saying, I want this kind of rescue in my life if I ever become so deeply ensnared in my sin that I've refused to repent. I want this. I'm signing up and saying, yes, I want this. When I'm here, clothed and in my right mind, yes, I want this. Um, but this raises a question. Are you dabbling with something that could take you here? Are you messing around with something that could pull you to this place? You need to know, this is the end goal of all sin unforsaken. Its design is to pull you here. Where no one can even tell if you really believed. You're not even sure if you really believe. Now this is, um, this is part of God's loving rescue. That you are here today 
and hearing about God's intent to rescue you from that which you are playing with. This is your invitation to turn from that sin today. This is part of God's loving process for you. You should heed that warning. Heed that invitation. This is, for those of us who serve our church as elders, this is hands down the hardest thing we do. Um, We are extraordinarily deliberate and prayerful in the process. Um, Some would say we're too deliberate in the process, but uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. And, And the first one's not the best reason in the world, but you need to know this is not fun for us. We don't sit around thinking, yeah, baby, let's get him. We do not do that. This is not fun. Most sheep who wander off do not want to be pursued. Okay? You pursue these sheep and they flip the middle hoof at you and tell you where to go. That's what happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm serious. This is not fun. Okay? Um, and so for, for reasons that are not noble, it's not something we jump into eagerly, but the, but the more noble reason is simply the weightiness of this matter. And, and this gives us pause. Listen to what Jesus says next. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Honestly, this is, this is closely attached to this disciplinary process we just talked about. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And probably the best explanation of what binding and loosing means is that the church has the power, by virtue of this reconciling process, to loose people from their sin if they will welcome it. And if they reject this process, then they are bound in their sin. There's a sense in which I suppose we speak for heaven in these matters. And that's extraordinarily, powerfully sobering for our elders. Please pray for us in these matters. Jesus continues similarly. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, this is best not to be understood as kind of a random inserted blanket prayer promise where all you need is two or three folk together who agree. Um, there are many great promises about prayer elsewhere, um, but this is probably not one of those big, broad prayer promises. It has to do with the context that we just came out of. D.A. Carson says in his commentary that the passage, if it's about prayer at all, it's restricted to this context of the matter of the discipline of wayward members of the church. And then he proposes something that really points us, if he's right in his understanding, really points us towards the second question, which is what happens if this actually works? If we actually rescue somebody and they repent and they're welcomed back. See, it's entirely possible here that the two agreeing, instead of being the two witnesses, it could be the offender and the offended one agreeing and being reconciled. And that this is in fact the work of the Father. This is in fact what brings the presence of the Son into that relationship. Um, 
And that points us towards this second question. What if this works? What if you go to them and they repent and they apologize and they want to be reconciled to you? This is the question Peter seems to have on his mind. Because Peter comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How, how many times, Jesus? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. Now, Peter is thinking about what anyone who's ever been sinned against repeatedly by someone is thinking. Whether that someone is an addict or a serial pornographer or a recurring liar or thief or gossip, anyone who's been wronged more than once has to be thinking, okay, how, how many times do I have to forgive? And Peter is really generous with seven times. That's really generous. Parents, think about when your child disobeys you the seventh time. Forgiveness is not preeminent in your mind at that point in time. Seven times? Off with their heads is what's in your mind, okay, on the seventh time. Now, in, in this day, the rabbis had pondered this question, and they said, you were required to forgive three times, and the fourth time, off with their heads. Okay? So Peter is really being twice as generous, more than the rabbis of, of this day. So when Jesus says, what some of your Bibles say, 77 times, this rendering says 70 times 7, it's, it's really not, the number is not the point. This is not an invitation to keep score. You know, 76, 77, whammo. Okay. That's not what Jesus is suggesting. The point is, you forgive as often as it takes. The point is, you forgive every last time. Every last time. Now, when Peter hears Jesus say this, he must have gotten that deer-in-the-headlights kind of look where somebody's just thinking, seriously? I double the rabbis, Peter says, and then you're going to go like 10 times on me or 100 times on me or whatever. Are you kidding? Seriously? 70 times 7? Jesus recognizes this, so he does what he does best. He tells a story to rock Peter's world and ours. Here's the story. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, this is not a monetary unit we use. What's a 10,000 talents? How much is that? And it's not something that exactly transfers into our day really well, but Grant Osborne in his commentary took a stab at it, and he figured it based on gold prices and a whole bunch of things like that. And he comes up with a number somewhere around 10 billion, 10 billion 
with a B dollars. Okay. Other commentators said that the point with such a huge number, it's like when your kids say a gazillion. Okay. That's the point. This is, this is an, a huge, unpayable debt. And when they heard Jesus say this amount, when he's telling this story, their mouths would have dropped open. This is a debt more on the level of national debt, not personal debt. When Jesus continues the story, he says, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So the amount, honestly, it's simply unpayable. It is an unpayable debt. And his whole family and his possessions are to be sold as a consequence. So what else can this guy do except make an impossible promise? Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, the typical master is going to say, yeah, right. I'll give you a six-month extension for you to scrape up $10 billion. It's not going to happen. But what happens is more staggering than the debt. Watch what this master does. Watch it closely. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. The guy just asks for a little time and instead he gets pity, compassion we might say, and forgiveness of it all. Ten billion dollars, a gazillion dollars worth of forgiveness. I don't know about you, but that's my kind of master, okay? If you got to have a master, and if I understand the way the spiritual realm works, everybody's going to have a master whether they want one or not. This is my kind of master, a 10 billion dollar forgiveness. Well, when that same servant went out, you get a sense that he walks out the door, he walks into the street, and he finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. hundred denarii. What's a denarii? A denarii is like a day's wage for a laborer. I don't know. Let's say a hundred days wages today for a laborer might be $10,000. Okay? Let's just say somewhere around there. So if, if I'm... This other servant, the guy that owes the first servant, I'm thinking, this is the best possible time for me to run into the guy that I owe 10 grand to, because he just got forgiven a $10 billion debt. So if I'm going to meet this guy, now is the time. Not exactly. Not in Jesus' story. The guy, the first servant who'd just been forgiven the $10 billion debt, seizes him. He begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Listen to these words. See if they sound familiar to you. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar to you? It should ring in this guy's ears like a bell. 
I've heard these words before. Where have I heard these words? Oh, yeah, I just said these words and got my whole family out of prison, maybe for a lifetime. But no. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Wow. Again, now the unforgiveness is more unbelievable than the forgiveness. Wouldn't you say? How could you possibly do this? What kind of jerk gets this kind of forgiveness and then denies it when it's a speck in comparison? Well, that's what the other servants were thinking. They watched this whole thing play out in Jesus' story. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had, been ta- all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him. And I think the guy's thinking, this is great. This guy just forgave me $10 billion. What's he going to do for me now? Not exactly. Master summoned him, says to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. that's, That's quite a story, isn't it? Punchline, I think, is pretty clear to Jesus' story. Forgive as you have been forgiven or else. Right? Wouldn't that be the idea? But just to make sure we don't miss it, Jesus steps out of the story, delivers the punchline in one blunt sentence. Here it is. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, in case it eluded you, Jesus is making clear to us. In his story, the master is God. And we are the servants forgiven a $10 billion debt. That's us. Okay. That's us. Is that how you think about your sin? Do you think of your sin as being this unpayable $10 billion debt? That's going to crush you unless somebody pays it for you. Unless somebody does what's necessary to forgive it. Jesus says your debt, it's like a $10 billion debt. My debt, it's like a $10 billion debt. It's this huge, mountainous, unpayable thing. But by the work of Jesus on the cross, which is coming in just a couple of pages in Matthew... Forgiveness has been purchased for all who would entrust themselves to Jesus. So have you been forgiven the $10 billion unpayable debt, which is your sin against a holy, holy, holy God? Are you sure that you've been forgiven your debt? Jesus says you you have a debt. Have you been forgiven that debt? If you're not sure, as we close our service in just a few minutes of communion, I'm going to have some of our elders standing down here near the communion tables. They are here 
in part to help you figure out how to make this exchange. If you're not sure, um, they can just take you aside right down here during communion. They can explain to you how it is that you can be forgiven your debt, your $10 billion debt before God. But if you have been forgiven that debt, if that deal's been done and it's been applied to your account, if you've had that conversation with your master and you walked away scot-free, how is that being passed on to those who need your forgiveness? Is there anybody you're not talking to? Is there anybody you're holding a grudge against? Is there anybody you're avoiding? Is there anybody you're just not willing to forgive? Somebody that's lied to you or about you? Somebody that's betrayed a trust or somebody that's cheated you? Somebody that's messed with your kids? That's a tough one. Somebody that's stolen from you? Somebody that's gossiped about you? Maybe they've done it over and over again? Those people... They, they, in a sense, owe you a very legitimate debt, a hundred denarii debt, a $10,000 debt. It's very real and it's very substantial. It's nothing to sneeze at. Betrayal, deceit, manipulation, whatever else has been done to you, it's a big deal. Until you roll it up next to a $10 billion debt, that mountain of $10 billion debt that you've just been forgiven. That tends to put it in perspective. There's a verse Paul writes in Romans 12. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We could say, Extend forgiveness to all. Is that, is that true of you? Have you extended forgiveness to everyone? Does that person that you're not speaking to or that person who's avoiding you know that you are standing right next to a mountainous, unpayable, $10 billion debt that's just been forgiven you? And you are standing in front of that debt, facing them with your arms open wide, saying, I forgive you. Will you forgive me? Do they know that? Now this, this is about friendships in this room, first and foremost. But of course it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. And you may think, the wrong that has been done to me is so great that I cannot do this. It is not in me to do this. And it's that time when you have to pray the prayer of the father who prayed for his suffering son. Do you remember his prayer? His prayer of mustard seed faith. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help me forgive. Father. Amen. And amen. May it be so even for us. And now it's time for us to come to this table. As we come today, I'd like to do something a little different. I'd like to tell you a story that I hope will prepare us for it. It's about a Catholic priest in the Philippines who carried a terrible burden, and while he was in seminary, 
He had committed a heinous sin and nobody knew it. And the priest had sincerely repented and worked to change his life. But in spite of effective and fruitful service in the priesthood, guilt and remorse for his sin haunted him day and night. He was not sure. He was not sure he had God's forgiveness. Now, there was a woman in his parish who claimed to see visions that in some of these visions, Christ himself came and talked to her. More than a little skeptical, the priest devised a little test. He asked the woman if the next time Christ came to talk to her in her visions, she would ask him to tell, tell her what sin the priest had committed, what this terrible sin was the priest had committed while he was in seminary. And the woman agreed. And a few days later, the priest asked if she had any news. And she said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Christ appeared to me just last night. Did you ask him about my sin in seminary? I did, the woman said. Well, what did he say? She said, Jesus said, I don't remember. It's not that Jesus has a bad memory. That's not what that's about. It's that the debt has been canceled. It's been forgiven. It's no longer on the books. All $10 billion of it has been forgiven you. You who trust in what we're about to celebrate, what we're about to remember. He will not hold it against us. Not ever. This was accomplished by what we were remembering at this table. His body broken. His lifeblood shed on the cross as payment for our sins. Now today, as you approach the table, I'm very mindful that you may need to repent before you come. Repentance is the kindness of God to loose you from your sin. You may need to repent of being unwilling to pursue a friend. A friend who's got something far worse than cream cheese on their face. A friend who's wandered away and you just watched him go. You need to repent of that. You may need to repent of failing to forgive as you have been forgiven. Um, and I'm, I'm going to ask our elders and our women's ministry leaders and any of our pastors who are here to be um, right down in front here in these front rows. They'll be over here on this side and over here by Daniel, where Daniel's sitting. If you want someone to pray with you, we would like to pray with you and help you repent of your sin by our prayers. Um, now, you can do that same process in your seat. If you want to come down here alone or with a friend and kneel down at, at the steps and forsake your sin in preparation for coming to the table, I can't encourage that enough. Let's come together to the table to Christ himself and have communion with him, the risen Christ, and find grace to help us in our time of need as together as God's people, we worship and we remember. We remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body it's broken for you, for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he explained that this was, this was the new covenant which was in his blood to be shed on the cross, which procured the forgiveness of sins, the removal of debt, all 10 billion of it. This we do in remembrance of him. Go to the farthest of fields Go and compel the sick and the well For our Father's house will be filled Go to the streets of the city the table the great 